As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. From an early age, the Finnish composer Jan Sibelius liked to create his symphonies while fueling up with wine or schnapps. Later in life, after seven years on the wagon, he made the following diary entry. And now I am returning to my most faithful companion, alcohol. He then went on to compose his last great symphonies and to live to the age of 91. Fortunately, he wrote, most of the doctors who forbade me from smoking and drinking are now dead. Most addicts, and that is what Sibelius was, are not so lucky. Addiction is our topic this week. What makes an addict? Behavioural scientist Camilla Lord came up with a suggestion on the aptly named Naked Neuroscience podcast, Understanding Addiction. Were that they also showed this trait called sensation-seeking. You really are going after those things that are fun. What she showed is that you need a combination of these two behavioral traits, impulsivity and sensation-seeking, to show a propensity or maybe a likelihood of developing a drug addiction. What was different about the people who'd actually gone on to develop an addiction were that they also showed this trait called sensation-seeking. You really are going after those things that are fun. What she showed is that you need a combination of these two behavioral traits, impulsivity and sensation-seeking, to show a propensity or maybe a likelihood of developing a drug addiction. Camilla Lord, citing the research of her Cambridge colleague, Karen Ursch. Can I just make a comment? Sure. So actually, in the U.S., People don't use the term that way. So they don't say you're an addict. They say you're a person with addiction. The idea is that, you know, if you say someone is a schizophrenic or 
an addict, it's seen as stigmatizing. Okay, that's helpful. When I get that wrong again, Mark, please, please tell me. With me to discuss addiction are Dr. Mark Rosen, professor of psychiatry at Yale University, who researches on behavioral change, especially substance abuse, and is a staff psychiatrist at the Veterans Hospital in Connecticut. And Nick Shepard, who works for Housing First, and will share his story of how, at one point in his life, the only consistent thing was substance abuse. Mark, we tend to come to this subject through anecdote and observation, but could you give us some idea of the scale of the problem nationally or internationally, such as in the United States? Well, in the United States, a lot of the numbers focus on high school kids, kids who are around 18, because people who make it past their teens and don't have a problem with alcohol, cigarettes, or other substances actually are not that likely to develop them later. Most people have something early on. So in teens in the United States, about a third of teenagers have drank alcohol in the preceding month, about 8% have smoked cigarettes, and about 20% have used marijuana. Each of the other substances is quite a bit less common. We're moving away from the term substance abuse. It's like substance use disorder. And I don't know whether there's a difference in the UK in comparison with the States. Nick, in terms of that sort of language, would that be deemed as, as offensive here? There's a big shift uh, recently towards changing the language that we use in the UK from substance uh, abuse to either substance misuse or, as Mark was saying, you know, rather than people introduce themselves, you know, as if you were in a 12-step meeting or my name's Nick Shepherd, I'm an addict. You know, it's my name's Nick Shepard. I'm a person who's struggling in life or I'm a person that suffered from misuse of substances or something like this. You know, it's a little bit less stigmatizing to me. The, the alcohol and the drugs is a symptom of something that had gone wrong in my childhood. You know, and why should I feel punished for somebody else's actions? You, you see what I mean? So if you start by saying I'm I'm an addict versus I'm a person with addiction, people look at you differently. If you say, I'm a person with addiction, people focus on other aspects of you and are more sympathetic. And they've, they've done studies with, like if you read a chart note that says, this is an addict who has been using heroin for this long. And if you start it with this sort of language and then ask someone what the treatment recommendations they tend to be narrower than if you say, so-and-so is a person with addictions who before becoming addicted did this, this, and this, and likes to paint and, you know, whatever the, the non-addiction aspects of the person are. When you introduce someone that way, they get treated differently and they get better treatment. They get thought about more broadly. It's like I never introduce myself or don't feel the need to introduce myself. Oh, I'm Nick and I've got one arm. You know, I'm I'm a person who's missing an arm. You know, the arm that I'm missing is not the whole of me. You know, and I find people, they, they can become an illness or, I don't know, let's say people that have got hepatitis C or diabetes or something, they can become an illness with a person attached rather than a person with an illness you know, and they can live their life as what they're labeled or how they're labeling themselves. So I think it is about moving away from 
from labeling people really and the stigmatization that can go with it. I sometimes feel like there's a double standard for people with addictions or mental health conditions where they're expected to speak openly about their conditions and, and almost lead with it. But in real life, people who, <laughs> whose conditions are subtler, most people have something that they don't want to lead with. People don't lead with the most stigmatizing thing about themselves. They get to know you first. They tell you in stages. And I think it's reasonable to expect that from people in recovery and people with addictions as well. So it's about normalizing it, is it? So it becomes part of the normal discourse? First of all, it's just easier to manage addiction, in my opinion. And I'd like to hear Nick's perspective on this. I think it's easier to manage it if you're able to be open because you're able to ask people around you to support you, to keep you away from high-risk situations, to understand when you have to leave to go to a meeting, to forgive you and not feel blindsided if you make a mistake and relapse. I mean, I think openness has a lot of advantages, but I don't think it's like just be open, be open, lead with, you know, your chin kind of thing. I think people are open in stages and I think it matters how receptive the people around them are to it. The other risk about being open is that you can't unring a bell. So people who are open about their conditions have to deal with the possibility that the information goes further. Yeah, I tend to agree. I mean, outside of work and in mainstream society, when I'm meeting people, you know, I don't feel the need to tell every single person, oh, I'm an addict or on this or on that. I've had situations where I've been in a pub and somebody's offered me an alcoholic drink, you know, and I'll just say, no, thanks. I'm quite, quite happy with a soft drink. You know, I'll have a proper drink, have a proper drink. Well, it is a proper drink. It's in a glass. It's liquid. You know, oh, no, no, I meant, you know, have a lager or a whiskey or something. You know, I don't want one. I have one. I'm an alcoholic and I'm in recovery. And, you know, they tend to get a little bit apologetic themselves then. And it's like, oh, wow, sorry, I didn't know. Well, of course you didn't know because I've never mentioned it before. You know, and it's sort of like try and brush over it that way. But um, I think with myself at work, most of the people that I'm working with, my clients, all know I'm from a recovery background. It's it's an asset to me. You've both talked about the sectors in which you work, and I'd like to explore a little bit about the economics of addiction. And start with you, Mark, because you've done some research in this area. Yeah, so my research is focused on the connection between substance use and funds. So substance use is related to access to, to money in interesting ways. There's more substance use at the beginning of the month when various public support payments are dispensed. And so when checks were paper, it was called the check effect. There are like more car accidents and such and more deaths at the beginning of the month than in the middle of the month. There's more substance use around the beginning of the month. and, And this is largely among people who receive public support payments for disabilities. And so we've done work looking at 
restricting people's access to money or collaboratively managing the money because a lot of money for many people with addictions is a trigger. People for whom the amount of money they had was a restraint on their substance use and they get a lot of money. It's like they may stop working and working is a protection against substance use generally because it gives you structure and something to do and generally keeps you out of trouble. Yeah, I think in uh, in the UK, a lot of people refer to themselves as payday junkies to get when their employment support allowance money is going in or the universal credits being paid into their account. They can have an influx of, say, between 300 and 600 pound going in. Uh, and then if they're getting a personal and independent payment, which is for the disability, replaced disability living allowance, you know, they can over a course of a month, one large check have up to £1,300 going into their account. They can fall off the radar for a week. They'll reemerge when that money has been spent. And, you know, for a crack cocaine and heroin addict to spend £1,300 or £600, they could spend £600 in two, three days quite easy. You know, then it's a knock-on effect for that for the rest of the month is they've got no money, they're out on the street begging or committing crimes to fund the habit. Um, I know with our guys, we can take certain amount of control over their money if they so wish us to do so. The government can ensure that their payments are split into fortnightly payments rather than monthly payments to help them manage their money. But it is a big problem to us is having one lump sum coming in at the beginning or the end of the month uh, of, say, a £1,000 and falling off the radar. Uh, I've seen back pay coming in recently over the last 12 months. Some people getting seven, £8,000 payments for the administration error that went on in the employment uh, support allowance. So, you know, to give a heroin addict £7,000 in his bank account, you just about well open the lid to the coffin. Yeah, so you, you want the money to be designated, go to somebody who can use it to at least pay rent and pay for necessities. It's not a home run. Like if you restrict people with addictions, access to money. So people who are just determined to, to use will find other ways to get the money. But it's a barrier. It makes it a little more difficult. It's the difference between having somebody just get the money and say, you know, hope you use it well versus your money is going to a custodian and you need to negotiate with that custodian what your plans are. It slows the process down and it's not a home run, but I don't know if I should be using a baseball metaphor with English people. Well, you'll be pleased to know we've got plenty of American listeners, so I'll let you get away with that. This is Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler, and my guests this week are Mark Rosen and Nick Shepard. Our subject is addiction. One way of trying to understand it is to work out what happens when someone with addictions tries to stop. Here's the neuroscientist Amy Milton speaking on the Naked Scientist podcast, the A to Z of addiction. What you get with psychological withdrawal is the system has been massively overstimulated for a really long period of time. So the reward system has gotten used to being active at a certain level. 
when a system like that is overstimulated, it becomes less sensitive. It's like the cells that are receiving the signal kind of put their hands over their ears. They're no longer listening unless they're being shouted at. So you take that drug away and you go back to normal physiological levels of stimulation those cells that are receiving the signal aren't listening anymore. And so you get a rebound effect where people feel very depressed, they often feel very anxious. And the way of getting out of that state is by going and engaging in those drug-seeking and drug-taking behaviours again. Nick, what was it that eventually caused you to stop? A near-death experience, to be honest. I tried to sort of get into recovery several periods of my life I wouldn't have said it was trying to get into recovery I tried abstaining from alcohol or drugs for a period long enough to make me healthy to continue taking drugs and drinking alcohol you know I had no concept really of what recovery meant I had no concept or of the support that was available because I wasn't ignorant to it I just never went looking for it you know any time that I'd given up drinking was really try and do it off my own steam. I didn't really want the stigma of, oh, I'm off to an alcohol anonymous meeting or something like that. You know, again, it was something that banded around in society. Oh, yeah, you know, you see somebody with a few drinks and getting a bit tipsy on a regular basis. Oh, yeah, I bet he goes away, eh? You know, and I just wanted to do it all off my own back. But intentionally, it was really to make myself well enough to continue doing what I was doing. It was only when I was getting to the stage where, so around 2010, I was really getting myself into a lot of trouble with the police. I was getting myself into a lot of trouble with drug dealers. I was putting myself in a vulnerable position on a daily basis. I was controlling and manipulating situations as people were doing with me. And it's all like that dog-eat-dog society and way of life that I'd got into. And I knew sooner or later I either had to get out alive or something serious was going to happen. I would either end up being being killed myself at the time, probably being involved in somebody else dying or the actual substance misuse killing me as a person, you know. I got raided by police and prosecuted for selling cannabis uh, three times in about three months. Uh, and by this stage, uh, at me, I don't know, at the end of my tether, really, I, I just wanted uh, a way out. I was offered a rehabilitation program, which is called drug treatment. It's an old drug treatment and testing order, drug rehabilitation requirement order, they call them now. Started having a chat with a few people that I knew would come through substance misuse uh, into paid work. They could speak my language, you know. I was speaking to a lot of people. They was talking a language that was completely alien to me. I didn't understand what, what they was trying to say. And then there's certain people working in the field that I identified as, you're speaking to me in a language that I don't understand, and I'm pretty sure you don't understand what words you're using yourself. You know, it's all recited out of a book or from a college or a university. When I actually started working with people in addiction themselves with lived experience, and that they could actually relate to how difficult it was for me as a person to stop and picking up on tips and ideas and, you know, little things they had done to help improve their lifestyle. I started to buy into the program. You know, I could actually see a tiny little light at the end of the tunnel. 
I was doing well for a few months on a voluntary basis. And then when my court order was imposed on me and I knew that it was something like, this is fixed in stone, you have to start this treatment on this day. It was like I just went on a mass self-sabotaging bender and put myself in hospital. My liver was barely functioning. My kidneys was, you know, pancreas, spleen, everything. The whole internal organs were starting to shut down. And I was in hospital for quite a few days. I think that was um, it just frightened me that much that I never picked up after that. I'd love to put my hand up and say, oh, yeah, you know, I found the courage to go through a treatment program and I did this and I did that and I started cutting down on my drink. It was sheer fright and terror of actually dying that stopped me from doing it. First of all, that's just inspiring, I think, that you didn't give up and you stuck with it, that there were multiple times that people, you made some effort or, I mean, you're saying now in retrospect, you think yeah. you were going through the motions until you were healthy enough to relapse again. But I'm sure at the time that wasn't easy to go through the motions wasn't easy. No, I mean, I, I, I managed sort of like various stages from say 12 months, I think it was the longest of the stints. I, I could put down a drink for a week, two weeks, did that several times, managed a couple of months, managed um, six months. The word recovery to me can be a bit misleading, really, because there's some people that are born into families that are heroin addicts, abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse. So if they're in their early 20s and people are saying, you know, you can get into recovery, what are they actually recovering? Because I doubt whether very much they would want to recover the lifestyle that they had. There's no presumption that everybody comes from a really good background, they have really good parents. It was interesting what Mark said at the beginning of the program. You know, you normally get people that have been abusing or misusing alcohol and drugs at an early age rather than people that are later on in life and then become alcoholics or, or drug addicts. So like mine was centered around early childhood trauma and managing that at a very early age through substances. Mark? Do you think we should be addressing these other factors, social economic factors, living conditions, abuse in the home of one type or another? Is that what lies behind in your research and experience of substance misuse? I think Nick's description captures just how complicated this, this is. And it, on a personal level, on a scientific level, it's going to sound abstract, but we think about variants. So why does someone recover at age 50? Or I'm not sure exactly how old Nick is. And uh, But at, at a certain point, Nick's experience was that he almost died. And after all these efforts, things clicked. So he got a job, right? That was a plus. Getting older at a certain point, a fair number of people do your quotation about sensation-seeking and risk-taking, those are stronger in younger men, and most people take fewer physical and other risks as they get older. Ironically, people take more social risks, so, so they're actually a little bit more open in talking but less, less willing to take risky drugs. In terms of your question about addressing 
issues of underlying abuse and social causes. I'm going to disagree a little bit with Nick. So his experience was it worked for him. And so that that's his experience. But I think at a certain point, if you start or in your teens and are primed to use alcohol and drugs and you've used for years and years, at a certain point, people use because they use. It does become a brain disease. It becomes a as natural as moving to the refrigerator to eat or to a water fountain to drink. And it actually requires a lot of effort not to drink or use drugs. So at that point, I think addressing the underlying issues or whatever caused it, I think that's useful as a way to engage someone that if someone's in pain because they were abused or had a difficult childhood or unresponsive parents, and wants to talk about that. But I don't think that's how people get cured. I, I think that's more in the movies, honestly. It's, it's a little too neat. I think you, you have to learn to not follow the instinct that's leading you to the alcohol or drugs. And I think there are a lot of things that contribute to that. And solving your personal puzzle is one of them. But learning what Nick described earlier about going to the pub and explaining that a soft drink is a proper drink and you know he learned that he somewhere with practice or whatever effort he he got the idea that a way to navigate people offering you a drink was to say i've got one and that was a learned skill and that's useful yeah i, I think that there gets to a certain stage or, or with me personally where whatever i felt was uh, leading me towards substances as a release as a like childhood trauma or things that I didn't want to face. By the time I was 16 or 17 years old, that was all on the back burner. You know, very rarely worried about it, thought about it. And um, I started to get a feeling, you know, that I enjoyed alcohol. I enjoyed drugs. I enjoyed the feeling that it actually gave me. And then you get to a certain point where, it may not be so enjoyable and you may not be, you know, enjoying it as much as what you used to, but my life was then planned. That was on default mode. You know, I'd get out of bed in the morning, I'd put my shoes on, I'd be out the door telling myself I'm not going to go and buy a drink. And I'm walking to the off license to buy a drink. And I think when when I got into recovery, it's like remapping the whole thought processes that I was going through, you know, that there's alternatives out there to having a drink. There's a, a lot of pleasures that you can get out of life that don't involve substances. I always say to people, you know, when my first few weeks or months in recovery was like looking through a dirty window and you can't really see, you can't really focus on what's out there. And then each day, you know, it's like a little bit's being cleaned and a little bit more is being cleaned until you can actually see, like Christ, there's a world out there, you know, there's something I can be a part of apart from what I'm used to being a part of. You know, and I, and I think your your daily behavior, crime, substances uh, the chaotic lifestyle that people can live i think you normalize it that much because it becomes easier to normalize it than it does to fight against it i've had the experience working with patients that as they recover i learn more about them and they become more well-rounded people like oh you have a brother who lives nearby you've never mentioned him 
oh, you're, you like to fish. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that. And their stories get a little richer. They're listening better to people and interacting more. That metaphor of the fog, clearing the fog from the window, you, you see it on the other side of the window, you see the person more clearly and they become much three-dimensional and hopefully they become yeah. happier or more interesting. I like to point that out to patients I'm treating. Like, oh, you've got more interests. You're, you've got these things that have fallen by the wayside that you're now able to enjoy. And you hope that that becomes a, a virtuous cycle. Well, I think as well, it's about... Um... When I quit everything in sort of like 2010, 2011, I'd spent so many years being this different person that I didn't actually know who I was. I knew I had some interests and I knew I enjoyed doing certain things. And I think I denied myself them pleasures because if you're running around the streets and you're dealing drugs and you're drinking and you're riding a motorbike and you're doing this, that and the other, then in the next breath you're saying, oh yeah, I'm going fishing at the weekend doesn't ring right so you don't want that stigma attached to the person that you portray yourself as you're never really your your own person you're the person that other people want you to be how they perceive you you adopt that role you know it's like being a, a social chameleon in the group of people that you're with at the time so i think when when i came out of addiction i got my first flat sorted out and i decorated it and i'm buying clothes and this that and the other and I sat down at one point about a year later and I thought, you know, I'm dressing like my granddad used to dress in the 1970s because I don't even know what, what I like to wear. You know, I, I decorated my house in these one wall in one brown colour and another wall in a chocolate, another chocolate brown and a light brown. And I sat there, I thought, you know, it, it's like living inside a box of chocolates. It's just not me. It's not what I want. You know, because I didn't really know what I wanted. didn't really know who I was. I knew what I'd become and what I was trying to get away from. I think a challenge is not giving up. Nick tried many times, and that comes through. And earlier in my career, I thought I could have a better sense of, like, who would do better and who would recover and who wouldn't. I think I had heard or learned somewhere that people who dealt drugs, that was a bad prognostic sign, that that was more antisocial and that that was not just being a victim, that was being a perpetrator. And the sort of senior clinician said, you know, you can't really predict who's going to do better. It's not linear. And that was, it was good advice. You, you know, you take someone who's been in and out of programs for five, 10 years, you look at that as they relapsed each time, or you look at it as they've kept trying. And you don't know what the end of the story is. I've been humbled by people who I didn't think would do well, who it just clicked. And and I've been surprised in the other direction too. Well, I've been humbled by this conversation and I'm glad you haven't given up, Nick. And I'm glad you're doing the work that you're doing, Mark. But we have to end it there. Thanks to my guests, Mark Rosen and Nick Shepard. We'd love to hear from you at nakedreflections at wolf.cam.ac.uk. Let us know what you think of the show. Give us a rating. And you can catch up on our back catalogue. There are episodes on conflict resolution, grief, the American election mark, and many, many more. You can find them and subscribe to the Naked Reflections podcast wherever you access your podcasts or at nakedscientists.com slash reflections. I'll be back next week with some more guests. 
I'm sorry to have to have to stop because we could have gone on for a lot, lot longer. It was a really fascinating conversation. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.